We're back. Now you say we're back. Like that or however you want to say it. I mean, if you just want to say we're back. Yeah, that sounds like a game show host. I don't know. Like a weird game show host that's about to be fired. (laughs) You mean a weird game show host? (laughs) You just told me to do it. I don't know. You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, Could Benjamin Franklin, the man who signed the Declaration of Independence, one of the founding fathers, really have been a serial killer in disguise? In the year 2000, the U.S. Treasury asked the public to try something, to consider using dollar coins instead of the usual George Washington $1 bill. But here's the thing. We'd been down this road before, more than once. Imagine if you lived in a world of strangers with no familiar faces. For about 2% of the population that have been diagnosed with face blindness, this is their reality. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, when I told you that I was going to do a segment about Benjamin Franklin, you kind of caught me off guard a little bit. You kind of said very strongly that you had things to say about Benjamin Franklin, which I didn't really (laughs) expect. So I don't have a ton to say about Benjamin Franklin, the man. I have a lot to say about Ben Franklin, the store. So have you ever been (laughs) to a Ben Franklin? I don't even know what that is. Exactly. So Ben Franklin is a store that's kind of like a small version of Big Lot's. When I was a kid, there was a Ben Franklin at the beach where we went. And I thought Ben Franklin was the coolest place ever. And then when I got older, I realized, no, no, Ben Franklin just has a bunch of junk in it. Yeah, it's like somewhere between a Dollar General and uh, like a Kmart. It really is. At at one point, there were 2,500 Ben Franklin stores. Now there's like 150. I, I just get a lot of mixed emotions when I think about Benjamin Franklin because I think of Ben Franklin's, the store. (laughs) Well... The Ben Franklin that we're going to talk about was an ambassador for the U.S. colonies to England in the years leading up to the American Revolution. You know, we know him for all, like, the post-American Revolution stuff, but we're going to be focusing on before that. So from 1757 to 1775, he actually lived in London at number 36 Craven Street. And in the years since, the home stood, unlike his home in Philadelphia, which had been destroyed in 1812, And so a group called the Friends of Benjamin Franklin House sought to actually turn the home into a museum. And in 1998, they began renovations to stabilize the building. But a month into those renovations, a construction worker made an unsettling discovery. In the basement, a small pit in a windowless room, and in that pit, a human bone in the dirt. 
So police were called and excavations began, which resulted in some 1,200 pieces of bone being recovered from over 15 separate bodies, six of which were children. And these bodies were over 200 years old, meaning that they may have been buried there around the same time Franklin was living in the home. So what gives? Does our $100 bill have a serial murderer on it? And Franklin was a Freemason, which I know you love, Dave. And the rituals of the Freemasons have always been sort of shrouded in this dark secrecy and linked to all sorts of conspiracy theories. Really quick, I think to be a Freemason, you have to be invited. You do have to be invited. If we have any Freemasons listening... Here's your chance. Invite me. Well, Dave, the answer to our earlier question, is Ben Franklin a secret serial killer? It's most likely no. Ben Franklin, despite the pile of bodies in his house, probably was not a serial killer. So then how did these bodies end up in the basement? Analysis of these bones revealed that many of the bones had been sawed through, drilled into, or had scalpel marks. And this is pretty typical of bodies that have been studied and points the finger away from Franklin and rather to his close friend and protege, William Hewson. Hewson, a researcher who worked in the emerging field of anatomy, had a major problem in the pursuit of his research. Since the study of anatomy was still frowned upon by many levels of society and sort of ethically ambiguous, bodies to dissect and experiment on were really hard to come by. In fact, Dave, laws existed prohibiting someone from studying a corpse, even for scientific purposes, unless the deceased had been an executed criminal. Due to this, bodies for people like Hewson were hard to come by. Some of those in the field turned to the black market to secure human remains, paying professional grave robbers to secure bodies, or even going so far as to dig up bodies themselves for research. So researchers believe that the house at 36 Craven made a perfect location for an illegal anatomy lab. Franklin was a good friend, and the home was flanked by a graveyard on one side and gallows where public hangings occurred on the other. Bodies could be secured and smuggled covertly into the home where Hewson could conduct his research in private. And then the bodies could be discreetly disposed of under the basement, which at the time would have been in Franklin's garden, instead of sneaking the remains back out and risk getting caught. Hewson also conducted extensive research on the lymphatic system by injecting sea turtles with mercury. In the pit of the human bones, researchers also discovered sea turtle bones, a shell fragment of which contained mercury, which is sort of a smoking gun. So then the question had to be, if this is true, and it was Houston all along, how involved was Ben Franklin? And for that, Dave, we don't have an answer. Franklin could have known what was going on and chose not to participate. Houston could have actually been conducting this research while Franklin was away in the American colonies in secret and then disposing of the remains before Franklin returned home. Now, Houston himself sadly would end up paying the ultimate price for his research, accidentally cutting himself while conducting research on a human body and then dying from the infection. Ben Franklin, as far as we know, never wrote about the theorized secret anatomy lab under his home. What do you think, Dave? What is the percentage chance that one of our founding fathers had a dark side? Well, honestly, if you look at him, like the picture that's on the $100 bill, he looks a little suspect. He looks a little shady. (laughs) Now, what I think is interesting about him is apparently when he was 22 years old, so okay, we're looking like the early 1700s. He wrote that he hoped when he died one day that his epitaph would read the following. The body of B. Franklin Printer, like the cover of an old book, 
its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here food for worms but the work shall not be wholly lost for it will as he believed appear once more in a new and more perfect edition corrected and amended by the author serial killer <laughs> i don't know i kind of liked it now what was actually on his grave when when he died do you know i have no idea no. benjamin and deborah franklin that's all it said <laughs> much less serial killer Jay, in 1985, feeling that it was rapidly losing ground to Pepsi, the Coca-Cola Corporation decided to try something a little crazy. It abandoned its classic tried-and-true Coca-Cola formula and released something called, wait for it, New Coke. Jay, despite a decent response in nationwide taste tests, New Coke was quickly abandoned for the old formula. Jay, New Coke was a complete failure. But that's the thing about life, right? I mean, failure is just part of it. In fact, it's become part of a well-rounded business school education to learn how to fail fast, meaning take risks and learn from failure so that you can come out better in the long run. So, Jay, looking back at your life, what is something that you've failed at? Well, whenever I was 15, I went to take my learner's test and I failed the first time taking my learner's test, but it was kind of like really on me uh, because I was just really confident that I was just going to walk right in and take it, no problem. So they give you a book to study with, and I didn't study it because I was like, you know, I know things about driving. This will be easy. It's multiple choice. Like I can miss like six of the questions and still pass. You know, it was like I was doing all that. And the problem was is that there wasn't a place that you could take the test in my hometown. You had to drive like 30 minutes off in some direction to find the closest DMV. And so my dad, I remember him being like, listen, before I like take a day off work and like drive you to the city so you can take this test, you need to be sure that you will pass it. Are you sure that you will pass it? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I've been looking at the book. Like it's, it's going to be easy. Like no problem. Went in, failed it. He like didn't say a word to me on the way home. Like he was so, which I mean, like he should have been, like because I was just like he I wasn't just, mad. He was like because they tried to tell me like you need to study, and I just wasn't listening. Well, if it makes you feel better, I failed it four times. Uh, two of which after my mom made me highlight the book. Well, sometimes Jay, we don't learn from past failures, and we fail again. Sometimes our efforts turn into the Sacagawea. Dollar coin. Jay, after stopping the production of $1 silver coins in the 1930s, the famed Eisenhower dollar was issued by the U.S. Mint in 1971. The coin, slightly larger than a quarter, featured former President Dwight D. Eisenhower on one side and was thought to be a surefire hit by legislators. The truth is, though, it wasn't. While production of the Eisenhower coin went on throughout the 1970s, it was never popular with consumers. I mean, who wants to carry around a pocket full of dollar coins? Let's be honest here. (laughs) The U.S. Mint, responding to user feedback, though, that the coin's size made it a bit of a nuisance, decided to replace the maligned Eisenhower dollar coin with a smaller dollar coin in the late 1970s, this time featuring Susan B. Anthony 
a famed social reformer from the 1800s who played a pivotal role in the women's suffrage movement. And would you believe, Jay, the Susan B. Anthony dollar also flopped. This time, though, the coin wasn't too big. It was too small. The new dollar coin was only slightly larger than a quarter, and so consumers once again rejected this in favor of the old trusty green $1 bill. And with this go-round on dollar coins, legislators had an even quicker hook. The plug was pulled on the Anthony dollar coin, and production was halted after only two years, ending in 1981. And Jay, that's kind of where things stayed for a while when it came to dollar coins being produced. The Eisenhower was too big. The Anthony was too small. Case closed. It doesn't work. Right? Wrong. Despite the stopped production and massive lack of popularity, by the mid-1990s, the U.S. Treasury noticed something kind of peculiar happening with dollar coins. The Treasury's supply of Anthony dollar coins had shrunk to almost nothing. The Anthony dollar had found a bit of a niche in the form of mass transit payments, so like subway systems, for example, and in stamp machines located in post offices. So because of this, the somewhat questionable same group of folks that had previously advocated that the U.S. economy just needed a dollar coin were back on fire, baby. Beginning in 1997, new legislation was introduced to restart the dollar coin engine resulting in then-President Bill Clinton signing legislation that featured the U.S. $1 Coin Act of 1997. This time, though, Jay, things would be different, right? I mean, the coin would still be close in size to a quarter, sure, but it would be kind of gold-looking, so you couldn't mistake it for a quarter. Of course. 23 artists were invited to submit designs for the new dollar coin with the U.S. Treasury eventually landing on a submission from sculptor Glenna Goodacre, sounds like a Harry Potter professor, that featured the female Native American Sacagawea, who famously helped the legendary explorers Lewis and Clark navigate the Louisiana Territory in the early 1800s. The first production of the Sacagawea goldish dollar coin took place on November 18, 1999, with full-scale production starting in early 2000. This time, determined to learn from the failures of the past, the U.S. Treasury went all out on the marketing of the new dollar coin, launching over $40 million worth of ads and partnering with mega retail chains like Walmart and General Mills. Jay, they even hired actor Michael Keaton to voice George Washington in TV commercials that practically begged consumers (laughs) to just give the new dollar coin a try. $100 million worth of the Sacagawea dollars were strategically shipped to Sam's Clubs and Walmarts all over the country to try and help to get the coins into circulation. Jay, the recipe for success seemed to all finally be in place. I mean, they had Michael Keaton for crying out loud. Had we done it? After all of these failed attempts, had we finally created a dollar coin that the public would fall in love with? Well, no. Just like the Eisenhower and Anthony coins before it, the Sacagawea dollar coin did not catch on. Once again, it was just too small, too annoying, and vending machines still thought it was a quarter. And Jay, what we can take from this is that sometimes the best way to truly learn from failure, especially three of them, is to just admit defeat. 
In 2011, Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner made it official. All future dollar coins would only be created for collectors, not for buying that bag of chips that you want from the vending machine. But I would venture to guess, just give it time. We'll try it again. Uh, I'm about to tell you something that is not going to surprise you at all. But do you remember whenever the um, state quarters were a thing? That actually happened in 97 with the uh, the act that Bill Clinton signed. It was all part of the same deal. Yeah, so guess who has a map of the United States with every single one plugged into a little hole on every state? This guy. I'm not shocked <laughs> in the least. So Dave, as a movie guy, I know that you typically like roles that Brad Pitt uh, is in, right? You're a Brad Pitt fan. Yeah, there are very few actors like Brad Pitt. He's just not in any bad movies. Every single Brad... I dare you to find a bad Brad Pitt movie. I was trying to think really fast if I could come up with one. but I, <laughs> I wish you could name one right on the spot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't have his Wasn't he in Mighty Joe Young? Right in front I feel of like me. That, was probably, that was probably bad. <laughs> Mighty Joe Young, was he in that? Um, have you ever heard Brad Pitt talk about how he has something called prosopagnosia? Do you know what that is? Uh, no. Yeah, I hadn't heard about it really either uh, until I started researching more about it. And prosopagnosia is also known as face blindness. And Dave, it's like this impairment in the recognition of facial identity. So simply put, someone with prosopagnosia cannot recognize faces even of people that they know. So people that have it, they have this difficulty. They can't even recognize their own family members, friends, even their own children, or a lot of times even themselves in the mirror. People that are prosopagnosic have known for years may just appear as total strangers until a connection can be made. Prosopagnosics typically have to rely on other aspects of a person's appearance just to recognize who they are, such as their clothing or their hairstyle or their posture. But even then, voices or mannerisms may still not be enough to totally bridge the gap for someone who deals with face blindness. It's really hard to estimate just how many people deal with some form of prosopagnosia, but most estimates put the number somewhere around 2 to 2.5% of the global population. Many people who have it just go undiagnosed, believing that they're just not very social or that they're forgetful or just scatterbrained. And growing up, those with face blindness may just be labeled as rude or antisocial children. And prosopagnosics, they have to deal with some serious social hurdles. I mean, they've imagined trying to make lasting friendships or date someone or build professional relationships at work when you can't even recognize someone from their face alone. Imagine something even as simple as trying to follow the plot of a show when you can't even track the faces of the characters. And dealing with it sort of takes its own form from person to person. As Sadie Dingfelder, a prosopagnosic herself, wrote for the Washington Post in 2019, For me, face blindness means being a little people blind. I will see a person who seems to know me, and I will greet them warmly and hope that, at some point, they say something that clues me in to who they are. An interesting thing here, Dave, about people who are born face blind is that, other than that, they're completely normal. And as far as what causes prosopagnosia, it varies depending on if someone was born with it or if their face blindness came as a result of a stroke. But for those who were born this way, the answer really seems to be actually pretty simple. Joseph DeGudis, a leading researcher of a face blindness study, put it this way. It's just this very specific problem in a specific brain area. From a scientific level, it's one of the most specific things going on in the brain that we know about. 
So Dave, quite simply put, the area of the brain that is responsible for this trick of memory is faulty in people with prosopagnosia. And while the disorder certainly brings challenges to those who have it, coming to terms with a diagnosis of prosopagnosia looks different for everyone. Heather Sellers, who is an author, spoke with NPR in 2010 about how the condition has shaped her ability to write. She says, I think a lot of brilliant, talented writers have a hard time staying in that chair long enough to get through the inevitable chaos that comes when you sit down to make a piece of art. And I've got a high tolerance for not knowing. I can sit and not know the heck out of a thing. I've been doing it my whole life. And I've trained myself when I don't know to not freak out and to just keep looking looking closer. And Dave, looking closer is sort of life for someone with prosopagnosia. Learning strategies to observe and put the world around you together like a puzzle more often than others, coming to terms with how the disorder shaped your early life and filling in the people in your life so they can come alongside you. All of these are aspects of coming to grips with prosopagnosia and a diagnosis of it and then making sense of that diagnosis. And a world full of strangers can obviously be intimidating and overwhelming, but understanding the disorder behind it. Prosopagnosics report that that's the thing that helps them reclaim some sense of control and then facing that world. Man, we take our health for granted. I, I think this all the time. Like, man, that could happen to any of us. Also, what could happen to any of us is incorrectly saying what movies that Brad Pitt was in. So uh, get, get ready for this. So he was not in Mighty Joe Young, the 1998 film about a giant mountain gorilla brought to a wildlife <laughs> preserve in L.A. But he was in the 1998 movie Meet Joe Black. So I was okay, so really, I can see how that really close. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to do a future segment, if there's anything there, on how was Mighty Joe Young allowed to be made when it seems like it's just King Kong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't it the same plot? I mean, it's just a giant. How many movies can we make about a giant monkey? No, because this monkey was like a parent. I've never seen it. I'm just guessing. I think he was raised by people, whereas King Kong was just like a monster. He was a savage. Now, he fell in love with a human woman, which was weird. But he was never raised by family. I don't think he like I th- fell in love. He with did fall in love. I think with it her. was just like he was wanting to protect her or something like that. Is that not? There love? was never like a love subplot. <laughs> now, who was in it was the late Bill Paxton, very underrated actor who was also in Twister. Yeah, I mean, I think he's properly rated. I don't know if I'd call him underrated. Speak of the dead, however <laughs> you feel comfortable speaking of the dead. That's all I'm gonna say. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Cobb. We'll see you next week. Okay, so we've got 50 stake coins. That's, uh, I believe, 1250 in actual dollars. And then I'm sure you had some kind of creative map that you, you had plugged the coins into. Let's do a quick little search here. Um, okay, so it looks like you could sell that, depending on the condition of your map, for about 50 bucks. So you could make <laughs> nearly $38 on your really cool, dorky investment. No, that wouldn't have been worth the memories of collecting them all. <laughs> They're worth, the memories are worth far more.